Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So what I'm trying to do is like read through the book of Jude and go up to the verses as we cover them. And hopefully, as I'm reading this each week, um, it's reminding you of things that we've um, taught on um, to bring those back to your remembrance. And it's beautiful when you're studying the Word of God um, intensely. For years, that'll stay with you because as you continue in your reading, your yearly reading, those things you taught come back to you as you walk through those passages. So it's really important that we're students of the word. And um, I think I've made that abundantly clear in my teaching. Um, Growth only comes from study of his word. And then as the Holy Spirit applies that to us. But today we're going to cover 14 through 16. Um, But I'm going to start at verse 1 again. And we read, Jude, a bondslave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ, Jesus Christ, may peace and mercy and love be multiplied, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to you to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, 
wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we're learning here, that um, we need to contend for the faith, that we need to be serious about your business. We thank you for the opportunity that people had yesterday to go to Monroe and to encourage our pastor and his family. And Lord, uh, many of us were praying for even gospel opportunities through this uh, service that was there yesterday. And we continue to pray for them. Give them comfort from you. Um, let them just find peace in you, even in the midst of a storm. We thank you and praise you for everything. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we covered verses 11 through 13, and we touched on what these apostates were like. They were stubborn and prideful like Cain. They were in the church for their own gain like Balaam. And they rejected human authority and God's authority like Korah. We looked at five natural phenomena that describe them. They are hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless autumn trees, wild waves of the seas, and wandering stars. <clears throat> now we come to verse 14 through 16 to learn more about these apostates. Verses 14 and 15 describe their final doom, and verse 16 continues to describe what these apostates are like. We live in an age where judgment and hell are taboo subjects, not only in society, but also in the visible church. There are too many that take up pulpits every week that deny hell and judgment or diminish the realities of these facts. They are more interested in padding the, their attending numbers all the while people are going to hell. God's word is full of the reality of judgment and hell from the beginning of our canon to the end of it. God has judged, is judging, and will judge sinners. This is as sure and true as anything in scripture. God's promise of judgment is a warning to everyone, including us that profess the faith in Christ. Let's start at verse 14 in Jude, and we read, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. The first question we must ask ourselves is, who is Enoch? And why did Jude choose to quote him? Enoch was a prophet of God. We see here that he was in the seventh generation from Adam. And here is, where, here is what we glean from Genesis 5 about Enoch. So let's take a deeper dive and see who he was. First, he was the son of Jared. Jared was the longest, second longest living person at 962 years of age. Some might be confused to think that this was the son of Canaan, mentioned in Genesis 4, but from Genesis 5 we see he is actually the son of Jared. That is several generations, exactly seven generations from 
Adam. Genesis 5, 18 through 20 says, Now Jared lived 162 years and fathered Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Second, Enoch was not a follower of God at the beginning of his life, nor was he for the first 64 years. Enoch fit right in with the ungodly. Third, Enoch was the father of Methuselah. At 65 years old, God gave a son to Enoch. Fourth, God saved Enoch after the birth of Methuselah. Genesis 5, 21 through 22 says, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So the fifth thing we see about Enoch is that he was a pre-flood prophet with a message of judgment and repentance. God had sent Enoch to the people to be a sounding horn of the gospel. We see God's long-suffering patience towards sinners and the fact that he sent Enoch the prophet to call them to repentance. The sixth thing we see is that Enoch was the father of the longest living person, Methuselah. Methuselah lived 969 years. Methuselah was born 369 years before Noah. Methuselah was the father of Lamech, who was the father of Noah. So Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah, and Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. And lastly, Enoch walked with God, and just as Elijah was caught up into eternity with God, so was Enoch. He was taken by God, and he did not experience physical death. He was 365 years old when God took him. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was a godly man that communed with God here on earth, and we are told that his life was pleasing to the Lord. There seems to have been a special delight that God had with Enoch and privileged him with bypassing death. In Hebrews 11.5, we read, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that the that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. God gave the first prophecy in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of our Redeemer coming to redeem a people of his own. But here we have the first prophecy that we know of given through a man. The first prophecy is the hope we put our trust in, and the second prophecy warns of God's judgment to come on all who reject the first prophecy. This story of Enoch that Jude refers to is not found in our canon, but it is found in the pseudepigraphic book of one Enoch. We looked at this word pseudepigraphic, which means, if you remember, means um, it refers to a false attribution of the author to a certain book. Enoch did not write this book, nor did he write any of the three books attributed to him. This actually brought pause to some of the early church fathers as to whether Jude should even be included in the canon of Scripture. Some of them thought that one Enoch should have been included also. These early church folks would have been familiar with this book, 
This book was a part of this of their history that had been handed down from generation to generation. The Book of Jubilee, the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, the Assumption of Moses, and the three books of Enoch all fit into this group of non-canonical writings. Though they were not part of the canon, some of what was written in them was true. The three books of Enoch were popular among the Dead Sea sect, which was a Jewish community that was active between 2nd century BC until shortly after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. By Jude referring to the book of 1 Enoch and quoting specifically 1 Enoch 1.9, he is affirming that this part of 1 Enoch is true. As we pointed out in an earlier message, the Apostle Paul cited non-biblical sources too, so this is not unique to Jude alone. So let's compare 1 Enoch 1.9 with our passage here, and you'll see some different wording, but the same jest is here. 1 Enoch 1.9 says, Behold, he comes with the myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to destroy all the wicked, and to convict all flesh for all the wicked deeds that they have done, and the proud and hard words that wicked sinners spoke against him. And... In Jude 14 through 15, and in Jude 14 through 15, it says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and in all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch prophesied judgment on the unrepentant, and that message was carried along in the naming of his son, Methuselah. Hebrew names were given with significance and meaning behind these names. Sometimes those names had current or future events tied to them. An example of this would be the name Peleg, who was given to a man four generations after Noah. His name means division. During Peleg's life, the event of dividing the people at the Tower of Babel occurred. As, Peleg, as with Peleg, so with Methuselah, we have a name that, that has meaning. Some say that name, Methuselah, means when he dies it shall come. Some say it means man of the sword. Regardless which one you land on, it seems there is a significance in the name for a coming judgment. Methuselah lived 969 years and died the year of the flood. I think we can look at the long-suffering and patience of God and the fact that God took 969 more years after the birth of Methuselah to destroy all mankind except for eight. I don't think it is a stretch to say that during those 969 years, Methuselah was probably pointing others towards God. We know for sure that Noah preached repent or perish while he was building the ark. God's patience had run its course and God chose to save only eight people out of all the human race. He destroyed the earth with a worldwide flood. We again see God's grace on some and his judgment on others. Let me just comment here on our day and age. We can sometimes look at the world and think it is as bad as Noah's time, but I'm not sure that's the case. One difference is that there are many more true believers of Christ than during Noah's time. 
We are still a ways away from where things were during Noah's time, but that should not put a pause on our evangelism, but rather should spur us on to be even more bold for our Lord. So what is the significance about all of this? Just as Enoch prophesied of destruction and judgment during his day, these apostates are under God's judgment and destruction also. That is why at the first part of verse 14, it says, it was about these men that Enoch prophesied. It is like Jude is saying, just like in the days of Enoch, before the flood, these men likewise will be judged. Jude returns to the theme of the previous verse in 13, for whom the black darkness is reserved forever, and also in verse 4 where he says these people were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. These men denied the coming judgment of God by their deeds and words. They arrogantly thought that, they were no, that there would be no judgment against them, very much like most people today. Jesus throughout the Gospels speaks much of coming judgment on those that would not repent. Regardless what people say today, God's word still stands for all time and there will be a time of judgment on all peoples that do not repent and turn from their sin. So let's go back to verses 14 and 15 of Jude again and read it. It, it says, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Three things we see here in our passage. Number one, God will come. Number two, he's going to come with his holy ones. And number three, he's going to come and execute judgment, final judgment on sinners that do not repent. Just like in the days of Noah, God has kept at bay his final judgment. But make no mistake, it is coming just as the flood came. So let's start with the first theme we see here, and that is the Lord will come. Jude uses the word Lord which brings a Christological understanding to the prophecy. Jude uses this term in verses 4, 17, 21, and 25 also. Unlike the first time he came as a redeemer of the elect, this time he comes as judge on all who do not repent. The aorist tense of the verb translated came speaks of this judgment as for sure set in stone, and it is so sure it is like it has already occurred. It seems that Jude was dealing with apostates that were questioning God's return, and he wanted to make it clear to his readers that this judgment was certain and sure. We see an example of this in John 17:4. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer before his death, says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Well, Jesus had not died had not yet died on the cross. So the work was not actually completed. But just as Jude is using the same type of language here, the work is guaranteed as done. 
Nothing is going to step in the way of the final work being completed. It is secure and sure. We also read in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 the following. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, <clears throat> that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When the last person that God has chosen, that when the last person that has been chosen by God is saved, then the end will be here and final judgment will come. But make no mistake, it is not that he might come, but it is set in stone that he will come. The second thing we see is, the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy ones. Some would suggest this to be believers, but the better way to understand this is that he will return with his holy angels. And those angels are used in executing the judgments and the, the, um, the judgment that is brought down. They are used to execute that judgment. This is keeping with New Testament passages that speak of Christ's return. Mark 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the third thing we see here is that the Lord will come with a specific task, and that is to execute judgment. Judgment not only on those apostates from Jude's time, but on all ungodly people, regardless if they were prominent false teachers or not. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jude also says that the Lord will come to convict the ungodly. We must make a distinction here between the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is in operation today and the judicial conviction when Christ returns. The Holy Spirit convicts men of their sins which can lead to repentance according to God's purpose. But when Christ comes to judge, this conviction is a judicial conviction. This is the Lord rendering the guilty verdict upon these apostates and also on all sinners who do not repent. You could take this as Jude saying, there is no hope of repentance for these apostates. I think this would be the conclusion from the entire letter because Jude never calls these apostates to repentance. And Jude was a, 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 a um, got his word from God, so we need to remember that when it comes to this text. And that's why I will say this, our job is not to conclude that there is no hope for anyone, but rather to leave that to God. Just to be clear, our job is to be used by God to call people to their sin and call them to repentance, as 2 Timothy 2.25 instructs us. A final point I'd like to make is that there are degrees of punishment in hell. I actually just had a conversation about this about a month ago with somebody. Some may balk at this, but this is clearly taught in Scripture. One sin makes us guilty of the whole law and liable for eternal punishment. 
James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. But some acts are worse than others and will receive a harsher punishment. We would think that Sodom and Gomorrah was at the epicenter of the greatest punishment someone could receive, but Jesus himself addresses this. In Matthew 11, 20 through 24, it says this, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. These cities were exposed to the greatest light, Christ himself, and they rejected him. There is, a great, there is greater punishment for the greater light that a person has been given. This is a stark warning for anyone sitting in a church under good teaching each week and yet continue in their sins. At the end of Matthew 11, we see Christ's call to all that have rebelled against him. Matthew 11:28 through 30 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are not in Christ, I would implore you not to ignore God's graciousness to you and being called to repentance right now. I pray that you will see your sin, that you are unable to save yourself, and that you would repent and turn to Christ. <clears throat> There's warnings of judgment for a reason, and we have opportunity to repent of our sins now. Now let's move on in Jude. Why are these apostates under God's judgment? Let's read the last part of verse 15 again. It says, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We see in verse 15b here that it is because they are ungodly people. These are those that have continued in their sin, their actions demonstrating that they are still in rebellion to his lordship. This is not only in their actions, but also in their speech. Their judgment is deserved and evident because of their words and deeds. The first thing we see here is that they are ungodly to the core. This picks up the same theme as we saw last week when we looked at the doubly dead tree that was uprooted. These men are spiritually dead and have no life in them. They are ungodly people. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, and what you previously walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, listen to this, among them we too all, all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. I'm always struck, yes, I get emotional when I think about my salvation. I'm always struck with the fact that it is, it was not, if it was not for the but God in verse 4 of Ephesians, no one would be saved. We were all children of wrath and ungodly to the core, just as these apostates were, but God in his great mercy and grace has saved some. The second thing is that their deeds show they are spiritually dead. Jude, throughout the letter, addresses their character. They had no desire to submit to the lordship of Christ, but rather lived a licentious life and used God's grace as a license to sin more and more. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Here we have the contrast between the apostates and those that are in Christ. The apostates lack any reverence for God which results in godless living. The true follower of Christ will produce righteous behavior in line with being a new creation in Christ. And lastly, we see their words show they are spiritually dead. This is not talking about people that have coarse and vulgar language which let me stop here for a minute. There's a big movement right now of thinking Christians can use the F word and any word they want, and it's fine. That is not fine. God is um, dishonored by our speech, so I do want to cover that. So we need to be people that have a speech that's honoring to our Lord and not coarse ingesting in our speech. So this isn't talking about people that have coarse and vulgar language, but actually this points back to verse 8 where it talks about them reviling angels. This is blasphemy against God. There is no fear of God in their hearts. They deny the gospel by their words and their deeds. The apostle Paul warns against these people in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, which says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. These apostates demonstrated that they had no reverence for God and his gospel but rather they denied our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. They spoke words against God and his commands. So now we move on to verse 16, which says, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust, 
They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. There are three descriptions of the character of these apostates. They were grumblers and fault finders. They were self-centered, chasing their own lust, and they were filled with arrogance and used their speech for gain. Our first description is they were grumblers and fault finders against God and others. This word grumblers is only used here in the New Testament. It is the same term that's used to describe Israel's grumbling in the Old Testament. In Numbers 14, 26 through 27, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Not only did these apostates grumble against the leadership, but also against God himself. They were always finding fault, which means complaining. They felt they deserved more and played the victim card just as the Israelites had done. They found fault in God. This is a dangerous place to be, and we must guard our hearts that we do not lay fault at the Lord's feet. It would do us well to remember what Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we are going through trials and temptations, we can become discouraged and even question if God knows what he is doing. We need to keep this passage in mind when we are going through things we simply do not understand. We must know that he always works things for our good, including our sin, as we are promised in Romans 8, 28 through 30. So the first description of these was that they were grumblers and fault finders, and the second description is they are self-centered, chasing after their own lust. These apostates were self-centered and lived only for their own lust to be fulfilled. We have already established their immorality, which was the mark of their entire lives. They had no check system against their lust because they had only their evil hearts that governed their lives. Romans 8, 6 through 8 tells us, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So our third description is they spoke arrogantly and used their speech for gain. I think this goes back to their arrogance and words against God. There is no doubt that people like this speak pridefully about themselves, but in their arrogance, they speak against God, exposing their rebellious heart. These apostates use the body of Christ like most, if not all, false teachers today for their own gain. They have no concern for the well-being of those around them and have no desire to have true relationships without motive. Their motive and means are always for themselves. Self-willed, self-focused, and self-loving is what marks apostates. In Isaiah 13:11, we are reminded of the final fate for arrogant, unrepentant sinners, which says, 
Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And in Jeremiah 50, 32, we read, The arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. And I will set fire to his cities and it will devour all his environs. Again, apostates are self-willed, self-focused, and self-loving. Their end will be final judgment and hell. So, at, so today as we close, I'd like to do a little application here of what we've learned. First, we know there is a day of judgment coming. Have you disregarded repentance, thinking that God will not repay you for your sinful ways? That you will not reap the reward of your sin because you presume upon God's grace? Possibly some of you in here have never bowed your knees to God in repentance, forsaking your sin and trusting Christ to save you. May I say today is the day to turn from your sin and live for Christ. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, we read, The conclusion when everything has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil now this is given at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and gives us warning here that we need to repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ because there will be a day of judgment that no one will escape. John Owen once said, Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. Secondly, if you are already in Christ, then you will not be subject to God's wrath on the day of judgment. Christ fulfilled all the demands of God in his perfect life and his death for our sins. Our sins were imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. Because of his work, we can stand before God with no condemnation because we are in Christ. This truth should lead us to understand our bond slave relationship to Christ. Our motivation for obedience to Christ should always be out of gratitude and love for him and not out of fear of judgment because that has already been paid. These messages, I hope, are turning you more and more to Christ and less and less to yourself. A passage that would not be descriptive of apostates is Galatians 2.20 where we read, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our third application is, let us examine our character and see if any of the descriptions of the apostates fits us even in a small way. Sometimes we can look at apostates or unbelievers and say we are not like them. But the reality is we can demonstrate some of the same character as unbelievers. There are times when we can be self-willed, self-focused, and self-loving. 
First, are we self-willed? Dying to self is a theme throughout the apostles' teaching, but it is also found in Jesus' teaching when he was here. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says the following, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Second, are we self-focused? It is easy to listen to the world that tells you to think of yourself first, but that is not what we are commanded from Scripture to do. It is, Paul is a great example for us of not being self-focused. In Acts 20, 22-24, he says this, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life on, of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What a tremendous example of not being self-focused. Are we willing to be like Paul? And lastly, are we more concerned about loving ourselves more than Christ and others? Romans 12:9 tells us, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Our lives need to be marked with a greater love for others. And as we have seen here in our passage, love takes action. Love takes action. Are we serving each other well in the body of Christ out of love for each other? Let me just share a couple more passages with you to encourage you this morning. In Philippians 2, 14 through 16, we read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So based on this passage alone, let us put away all malice, anger, evil, envy, fault-finding, selfishness, or any other sin that is dishonoring to our Lord and also dishonoring to everyone that's in the body of Christ. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be fulfilling the law of love to our Lord and to each other. And then he goes on, starting at verse 11 through 14, and says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. May this week find you striving for your holiness in Christ. May our love for him and each other grow more and more as we kill any sin in our lives that dishonors our Lord. But we also need to remember this. We are to be gospel soldiers for Christ to a world that is headed to hell. We have just seen that judgment is for sure and set and coming. And if you love people, where are you going to do? You're going to open your mouth and warn them. Just as we have seen today, there is that final judgment coming. Love unbelievers well and call them to repentance while there is still time for them to repent. Jonathan Edwards once said, some talk of it as an unreasonable thing to fright persons to heaven, but I think it is a reasonable thing to endeavor to fright persons away from hell. They stand upon its brink and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of their danger. It is not, is it not responsible thing to fright a person out of a house of fire? Or is it not the duty of a parent to warn their child running towards the edge of a cliff? Let that put a fire under you for your neighbors and the people that you work with to pre look for those opportunities to present the gospel to them. And let me close with this encouragement. He is faithful and just to forgive sinners, just as he has forgiven us. What a great God we serve who does not give us what, he deserve, what we deserve, but lavishes us with his love. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather today. And we understand that judgment is real and hell is real, regardless of what false teachers say. And Lord, we want to be faithful servants of yours, faithful slaves of yours, and bring that messenger. You have called us to be ambassadors to a fallen world. And Lord, let us not get in the way of your message, but to be bold to proclaim your message. Let us fear you more than men. Let us open our mouths because men are going to hell today and they need to repent. And you have used us as you used Enoch and Noah and even Jude to call people to repentance. And we have the honor of doing that ourselves. Thank you that we love each other. May that love grow more and more. And let us not be um, self-focused, self-willed, self-loving, but rather to think of others and first and foremost think of you and love you more in christ's name amen